everyone. Welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Woods, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out here in the background. Um, Serving off last week, uh, family reasons uh, got me to not be able to release an episode, uh, but I'm back this week, uh, unfortunately with no guests, but I have a few very interesting topics for uh, for you to uh, dive into with me. This is episode 131. On October 12, 2023, as always, if you want to support this podcast, you can do so by going on consumerchoicecenter.org slash donate and donating in uh, cryptocurrency or uh, fiat uh, uh, for to switch it around for once uh, on this on this podcast here and do rate uh, the podcast favorably and recommend it to a friend uh, for their morning commute, gym uh, or whatever. Uh, maybe you want to fall asleep to it. Um, so we have three topics this week. Uh, first off, we're starting off with the uh, flight the fight over flights uh, reductions at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport. Uh, we're talking about don't make pesticides part of the conversation on grain exports, says Ukraine. And France tries again to ban meaty names on plant-based products. So we had that conversation before. All right, so we talked about this a couple of times uh, on the podcast, uh, but for those who are listening to this podcast for the first time or who don't remember me talking about this, Bit of a refresher. Why is Amsterdam trying to reduce the amount of flights? We got someone on CNN laying it all out for us. Why uh, Schiphol Airport did this, limiting the number of flights, is partly because of carbon, carbon emissions and also noise pollution. Before we get to the lawsuit, let's just talk about how big of a problem that is uh, in and around Amsterdam, in and around uh, Schiphol Airport. Well, yes, you need to know, of course, that um, Schiphol is a really significant European airport. It's one of the big four alongside Paris, uh, Charles de Gaulle, Frankfurt, Heathrow, um, and also Istanbul's new airport, I think you would include in that. So considering the population of the Netherlands, it is incredibly busy. And of course, this is in a very crowded nation. And really, wherever you are in this area south of the city, of Amsterdam, close to the uh, cities of Haarlem and of Leiden, there is going to be noise impact. Now, they do what they can to mitigate it in terms of having aircraft approach from the sea, for example. But ultimately, the wind decides um, what the uh, flying patterns are going to be. And exactly as you say, um, this was nine months ago. And at the time, a number of big European airports, including Amsterdam Schiphol, including Frankfurt, including London Heathrow, were having real problems with resources. And so uh, you had um, a reduction in the number of flights, but everyone thought, oh, well, that's just a short term thing. But then the Dutch government comes along and says, yep, we are going to cut the theoretical maximum from 500,000 operations a year to 440,000. That's an 8% drop because we believe we've got to um, uh, bear in mind not just the local issues caused by noise, but also, of course, the global issues caused by aviation emissions. So this reduction in flights has caused some problems. Uh, Some uh, US carriers are not happy. Uh, Politico was reporting about two weeks ago that US carrier calls for retaliation over Amsterdam airport flight limits. And they say that U.S. low-cost carrier JetBlue has lodged a complaint against the Dutch government over its plans to curb flight numbers at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport and called for proportionate countermeasures against Dutch airlines such as KLM. 
Now, it seems that some sort of a solution has been found because the airport has announced that there will be a proportional reduction overall for all carriers. And that means specifically that uh, KLM, which, uh, you know, detains about uh, 60% of the slots uh, at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport, uh, will be the one hardest hit because all airlines will see proportional reductions. Um, it does need to be seen what some other airlines that only have one slot um will actually and how those will be impacted for instance uh, JetBlue is exactly that one as far as I know they only have one slot Uh, they just started flying from uh, uh, New York to Amsterdam direct and uh, and 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 with their one slot, if they are on the chopping block, uh, that would violate treaties. So they say, in a complaint submitted to the U.S. Department of Transportation on Thursday, uh, that was Politico's uh, article from two weeks ago. JetBlue complained that the Dutch government plan is a flagrant violation of the U.S.-EU air transport agreement. The airline started operating two daily flight connections with Schiphol this summer. Okay, so might might be two slots, and probably just one slot actually for two flights. Uh, it should be should be doable, but expects that the new flight limit would lead to its involuntary expulsion from the market. Okay, so it's it's indeed just one slot. The JetBlue complaint called on the U.S. Department to take countermeasures unless the Dutch government changes course. It suggested additional regulatory requirements, but also a mandate to reduce Dutch carriers' scheduled services to the U.S., including at New York's JFK Airport, to, quote, commensurate with the forced reductions facing U.S. carriers at Amsterdam. Um, so uh, this uh, is pretty much what I said initially when we started having this conversation here on the podcast about reductions at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport, um, because uh, it is uh, you know there's existing agreements and it is very unfair to have KLM still operate to Amsterdam solely while the only carrier, um, well a carrier that only has has one flight there would be on the chopping block. Uh, that seems very anti-competitive, uh, and and if the Dutch government, which is you know one of the shareholders at KLM wants to reduce flights, it should disproportionately actually punish its own airline to show its good intentions. All right, and what do we have next here? And this is something we haven't uh, talked about actually a a lot on the podcast, which is uh, grain exports from Ukraine uh, to the European market. And it's something quite complex uh, because there's a lot of factors that go into this. Uh, But first, let's let's see what um, uh, the head of Ukraine's food safety body, this is Ola Shevchenko uh, had to say uh, in her Euractiv interview. This is a written interview um, from, I believe, a couple of days ago. And uh, the article starts with, in the ongoing back and forth around Ukrainian grain exports to the EU and their impact on neighboring states, countries like Poland and Slovakia raised concerns about the compliance of Ukraine's produce with the EU's phytosanitary standards, that is, rules on plant protection products and their safety for human, animal, and environmental health. So, as someone who works on the agricultural file quite a lot, uh, I find it very interesting that this is now uh, being raised as a problem by Poland and Slovakia. Um, well, on, one, on the one hand, it seems clear because I mean, Poland and Slovakia are one of those countries that want to reduce the overall grain imports coming from Ukraine because they say that their own producers um, are being rivaled too much on the price, even though both countries say they are supportive of the, the, the situation that uh, Ukraine is, is, is faced by currently. Um, and you know, which is related to how much grain they can export around the world, with uh, Russia being fairly intrusive, let's say, uh, in the Black Sea. Uh, this has already uh, caused problems on the uh, World Trade Organization level, where Ukraine has uh, just justifiably launched a complaint. 
Um, and now it seems to be a new moment in the conversation where uh, some countries are trying to say, well, essentially your pesticide residue levels are too high. Now, this might just be a hunch, but I I, I believe that uh, probably Ukraine has not upped the use of pesticides in response to the war, and because actually, I mean, the accessibility to to crop protection products has actually become harder for many many countries uh, following the war in Ukraine. Uh, this is also because Russia is a, a producer of pesticides, and uh, and it's and it's harder to get the products, and also because your margins are tighter as a producer, uh, and you do uh, not want to use more pesticides than you really have to. So this sounds like a lame excuse, um, and uh, this seems to be echoed by uh, Shevchenko. Uh, she says um, she is insisting that uh, trade partners who have to comply with such standards uh, is being normal and understandable, but this should be treated as a technical rather than a political issue. She says, for example, there are rules inside the European Union that we need to fulfill when we export. For us, this is totally understandable, she said, uh, adding Ukraine, <clears throat> adding that Ukraine has extensive systems of control in place, including laboratory testing and controls for test batches and raw materials. But in the end, SPS, sanitary and phytosanitary measures, cannot be part of politics because it is about human health. Now, call me cynical, uh, but I would wage that um, the elections that are coming up on Sunday in Poland, which we will talk about on the podcast next week uh, with uh, Marek Tetawa, um, is something that probably is incentivizing the Polish government currently to be harsher on the issue than uh, absolutely necessary. And we will see as to whether there will be a governmental change in Poland following the elections. But in any case, it, it, it probably must make things easier. Uh, and uh, and the fact that Slovakia just held its election and will probably soon uh, have a new government um, will, uh, will, will, will probably ease uh, things um, to an extent. Uh, but unfortunately, just to an extent, because the new government in Slovakia uh, seems to be more on the Russian side and the Ukrainian side. Uh, so another headache added here on the issue uh, for the European Union and uh, is definitely not making grain exports easier. Uh, my view on the issue has been that you know, if, uh, it is not unjustifiable that, that grain producers in, um, in the European Union are complaining about the competition from Ukrainian grain being cheaper. Um, to be fair, that's not a new concern. Uh, this has always been a concern. It's just about the amount that currently comes into the European market. And I think this is where uh, the, uh, the, the European Union should be proactive and say, well... Um, even though Ukraine might not be in a position to get it to all the the, the, the regular recipients, uh, including in Africa, um, why don't we resell? Uh, why don't we create the channels uh, for for reselling within the EU, uh, or get Ukrainian business uh, businessmen and and women into the equation in uh, on EU territory to get it redistributed? Um, this seems to me a much better solution than trying to impose. Uh, protectionist rules and 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 quotas uh, for Ukrainian grain. And then last but not least, and yes, we are doing this again. France tries again to ban uh, meaty names on um, plant-based products. This is a story from the Guardian. France's long-running battle over vegan food names has escalated as the government published a decree banning meaty terms such as steak, grill, or spirits being used to describe plant-based products. Marc Frenot, the French agriculture minister, said the new government decree on products such as vegan ham or plant-based steak was about helping shoppers and, quote, an issue of transparency and honesty responding to the legitimate expectations of consumers and producers, end of quote. 
But some vegans and animal rights groups said it showed that the French government was favoring the meat industry. French farmers and meat companies have long complained that the customers are unjustly confused by the notion of vegetarian meat. France remains a predominantly meat-eating nation and is the European country with the highest beef and veal consumption per inhabitant. According to an IFA poll in 2020, fewer than 1% of the French population is vegan, and the word vegan itself uh, has become laden with negative political associations amid rows of activism against butcher shops. Well, I would say that the uh, vegan and animal rights groups are correct by the fact that uh, France is beholden to the meat industry. We've seen this quite a bit over when France... um, raised opposition in the Mercosur-EU trade agreement, again protecting its own uh, meat industry against competition uh, from abroad, even though a trade deal with Mercosur, which includes Brazil and Argentina, uh, would be a very favorable uh, economic outcome and also a consumer choice uh, issue. Uh, and this one is uh, is just a silly, silly way of going about this. I mean, no consumers have have genuinely asked for this uh, to be implemented, and it's a it's a, it's a silly uh, it's a silly performative gift to the meat industry. We had the exact same conversation on an EU level. Um, the European Union has decided to ban um, the, the 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 alternative milk name, so you can't put almond milk. Now you have to put almond drink. Um, but on the meat question, the EU, um, uh, I think, I, I believe the amendment was struck down a couple of years ago, maybe just before COVID, that would have banned the, the terminology of you know, vegan burger or any of those things. So now France is trying to do the exact, exact same thing. And it's the exact same tone death conversation um, uh, between people on the issue. I don't think consumers are significantly confused by that. I mean, for, for the most part, the price is the indicator already of the difference between those products, because very often the plant-based products are more expensive than the meat products. So on, on that front, I just I just don't see why price-sensitive consumers that don't care whether it's milk or not milk would be swayed to buy the plant-based product. I think you the price is what most consumers look at anyway. And if they drink it and they, they find it as plant-based, I don't think it would be a significantly uh, problematic response from consumers. Logically, the only reason to do this is to protect the meat industry because I don't think anyone is that thoroughly confused by the idea that uh, tofu-based spare ribs are not actually spare ribs. You know, if you want to talk about fraudulent on, on, on a fraudulent level of advertising, I think there's a lot more to be done on other products than going after this. And ultimately, you would think that the government would be trying to reduce the overall meat consumption anyway from a sustainability perspective uh, because, well, I mean, France does eat a lot of meat and that has a a CO2 emissions impact. And you would think that here is a practical solution where you give people a substitute um, that tastes good. And I mean, those products are getting better as we speak. And and, and they they, they, they would support it. But unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be the case. We are involved in petty battles uh, sparked by the lobbying of the meat industry, unfortunately. And that is unfortunately as much time as I have for you today. Um, I wish I had more time with a guest, but we will be catching up on that when we talk about the Polish election results next week here on the Consumer Podcast. Um, Until then, please uh, do listen to some of the old episodes uh, if this was a bit too short for you. And uh, we we will be back to give you all the news about consumer regulatory issues in the EU and beyond. I've been your host, Bill Woods, and I'll see you Thursday. You have to learn.